ever thought about why you shouldn't sin? Usually we think about why we shouldn't sin from the perspective of, well, because someone will catch me, or because maybe if we're thinking a little bit more spiritually about it because it displeases God. But I think in these two chapters that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see the idea that sin not only violates the greatest commandment, love God with all of who you are, but it also violates the second greatest commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the reason that I say that is because uh, sometimes we think about the Ten Commandments, like someone's broken one of the specific Ten Commandments. But when Jesus summarizes them, he said, the first four have to do with loving God of all of, with all of who you are, and the second six have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to see that played out in the passage this morning. This is a difficult passage. Um, we see Judah, who has just schemed against his brother in the previous chapter, now showing by his actions that he is not a particularly morally upright or righteous person. And yet we're going to see toward the end of the book that God is going to use Judah's family despite this sinfulness. Uh, he says in the blessings of Jacob in chapter 49, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, his teeth white from milk. God is going to bless Judah down the road despite his sinfulness here. And like we talked about last week in our discussion on Sunday night, there are, I believe, parallels between Judah and Jacob with regard to God's blessing. And we'll talk more about that in future weeks. But in this chapter, Judah is not living up to any sort of expectation of someone we would think God is going to bless. Judah goes and takes a wife of the Canaanites. Look at verse 2. He saw a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her, and he went into her. We see a parallel in this to the actions of Esau, to the actions of others who have married into the Canaanites instead of going and, and, and marrying within the family. And as I talked with my, with my kids in the Bible class, we might look at this, and we might, in our context, think that this is some sort of of racism, like our family's better than your family, and, and you can't be a part of our family because you don't live up to our standards. But the reality was, God was not primarily concerned about ethnic purity, and I'll explain why in a moment. God was primarily concerned about his people's hearts not being drawn away from him. And the way that that would take place would be that either by marriage or extramarital relationships with the peoples around them, there was a constant danger for the people of Israel to be led astray into the idolatry out of which God had called them. That was the primary reason that they were not supposed to marry the Canaanites. Judah and his wife have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Judah takes a wife for his son, the oldest, the firstborn. Her name is Tamar. 
but Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. It does not say how he was evil. It does not say the nature of his evil. It is interesting to notice that when we see this phrase occurring later in the Old Testament, it occurs in association with a number of the kings who lead the people into idolatry. So perhaps it was idolatry, but the text doesn't say. It simply says he was evil, so God took his life. Judah says to his next son, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to your sister-in-law. And this seems like a strange practice. Why w- what is Judah saying, first of all? And second of all, when we understand what he's saying, why is he requiring his second son to do something with the older brother's wife? To understand this passage, we would probably need to look to a passage like Deuteronomy 25. So turn over there briefly, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter 25. And verse 5. When brothers live together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her to himself as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. If the man does not desire to do this, his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, and if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face, and she shall declare, Thus it shall be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Not an exact parallel, but we see something similar in the account of Ruth. Boaz has the encounter with a close relative. There's the taking off of the shoe. There's Boaz saying, I will assume the property and take Ruth as my wife. And so that practice, though perhaps corrupted in some forms in the times of the judges when people were doing what was right in their own eyes, seems to have persisted even in the account of Ruth. So these three examples taken together, I think, help us to understand what Moses' audience would have been thinking when they heard this story. I think Moses wrote it in such a way, because of the language being very parallel between Deuteronomy 25 and what we see here, I think he wrote it in such a way that he's writing it for people who have received the law and are thinking about events early in their history in light of the law that God has given. That, I think, helps us to understand why there's not a whole lot of lead-up to this or explanation, because for us today, if we look at the passage and we say, Judah says, do this right of a husband's brother, like a lot of it's not explained. But if we take it in context with Deuteronomy 25 and the way the people of Israel would have received it as Moses is giving them the five books of the Pentateuch, I think that makes more sense. A strange practice, a difficult practice, because your firstborn son is not your firstborn son. He's your older brother's firstborn son. He takes his name. He receives the inheritance, potentially. And your second-born son is the one that's counted for you as your son. That's asking a lot of someone, right? Your brother's dead and gone. You might feel like, I don't have any responsibility to him. But this practice required the families to 
not abandon the wife who was a widow, and it required them to not forget the brother who had died unexpectedly. Judah's second son wants nothing to do with this. So he takes her as his wife, and then he basically says, through his actions, I don't want to have kids with you. I don't want to do what's expected of me. And so God strikes him down dead as well. Judah's afraid for his third son. Two sons are dead. I'm worried that the third one's going to die too. So even though his son is, grows up and is old enough to marry his daughter-in-law Tamar, he refuses to bring the marriage about. And that leads us to the events of the middle of the chapter. Judah's own life dies. Judah goes up with his sheep shearers after the time of mourning and goes up to visit his friend that he sees in verse 1, Hira the Adulamite. Tamar is told, hey, your father is going up to shear his sheep. Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. She dresses in the way that a woman who offered herself for money in a way that should only be reserved for marriage, she dressed that way, waited by the side of the road where she knew her father-in-law was going to come by. He came by, and he chooses not to regard what will be later recorded in the law and what was clear from what we see in the first two chapters of Genesis, which is marriage and all the things connected with marriage are supposed to be a lifelong commitment. That's what Genesis 3 and following talks about, right? Genesis 2 and 3 and so forth. But there have been people for a very long time in human history who have said, I want the enjoyment of a marriage relationship without the commitment of a marriage relationship. And sometimes that has evolved to the exchange of money. So Judah approaches this woman that he has no idea is his daughter-in-law and says, if I can act as though your wife, you're my wife for tonight, for this day, for however long, how much will you charge me? And she said, a goat from your flock. Or, and she says, well, how do I know that you're going to send it? And he says, all right, let me give you these signs and symbols of who I am. Here's my ring. Here's these these signs of, of, of who I am and my part in my family with my father. And so he and the staff that was in his hand. So he gives those to her. And then when it's time for her to get the goat from his flock, she will show those objects and then he'll know this is the right person and I will give her the goat and then she'll return the things that belong to me. This takes place. Judah goes to the same spot, can't find the woman that was waiting there for him. So he says, I don't know what to do. They said there's been no one who was here. Here's an interesting point with regard to why we know that God did not want the Israelites to intermarry with the people of the land. How was his daughter-in-law dressed? It says in verse 21 that he assumed that she was a temple prostitute. What this means was that there was worship of idols, and part of the worship of idols was a corruption of what marriage was supposed to look like 
and people behaving as though they were married with one another for a brief period of time as a part of worship of idols. And so when Judah came to look for her, he assumed that, he, that she was one of those women because that's the way that she had dressed herself and that's the way that she had acted. Judah says, let her keep the things that I gave and I sent the goat, but I couldn't find her. Three months later, the verses that we read this morning. Judah hears that his daughter-in-law has a child. And aside from the birth of Jesus, she could not have had a child without having been married and having a relationship with a man. And so Judah assumes she has committed adultery. She has um, been with a man and had this child and has not been married and followed all the things that she was supposed to follow. So... She needs to be punished. So he says, bring her out and let her be burned. It is interesting that we do not see any evidence of this idea of, of burning someone, at least that I can think of at the moment, with regard to this particular sin. In the law that we will see later, what was it that they would do to someone who was caught in this type of sin? They would stone them. The idea of burning, and again, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just saying that it's interesting to notice that the law says stoning and this says burning. While both types of death would have been difficult, burning potentially is far more painful. Potentially. And fire is often associated with pagan worship practices. For example, later on, the people will, when they worship the pagan god Molech, they would offer children in fire to this god. Again, just tying in some other things from elsewhere in the Old Testament. Judah's response is, let her be punished. Notice what Judah does not think about. Judah does not think about his own sin. Judah doesn't make any connection to the events that happened three months before and the fact that if this daughter-in-law deserves punishment, even if she had committed the sin with someone else and it turns out she had committed it with him, he deserved punishment too. She was being brought out and she said, my child belongs to the man to whom these objects belong and she brings out the things that he gave her three months before. Judah recognizes them and says, she's more righteous than I because I did not give her to my son. And he did not behave that way toward her again as though she was his wife. When we look at this passage, this passage is disturbing on a variety of levels. It is concerning. It is, it, it raises questions in our minds. But the main point that's being made is Judah goes and takes a wife of the Canaanites, which he shouldn't have done, has sons who act wickedly in God's sight, out of fear, refuses to do what he's supposed to do in marrying his youngest son to his daughter-in-law. She takes matters into her own hands and basically encourages him to commit sin, and he, having just lost his wife and refusing to behave in a way that was righteous and noble and so forth, decides to sin. He's ready to attack her for her sin, being blind to his own sin, and the point at which he recognizes 
All of these things coming together is when he's ready to punish his daughter-in-law and he realizes that he's the reason that this baby is being born. And I think he has a moment, perhaps not of repentance, but at the very least of realization of the chain of events that has led to that, that particular point. Was what happened wrong? The law will later say any type of a marriage relationship between a father and a child, between a mother and a child, all of these things is wrong. Paul will condemn it as wrong in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a man who marries his mother-in-law, says it's wrong. That should not be that way. Even the Gentiles usually don't act that way. So clearly that was wrong. Were the actions of Judah's daughter-in-law wrong in behaving as though she was one of the wicked women attached to the temple and basically asking Judah for money so that she could get the baby that she felt that she was owed? Yes, that was wrong too. Why then would Judah say she was more righteous? Because he realized that he had withheld from her what he owed to her, marriage with his son, and even though she went about it in an entirely wrong and sinful way, she had a right to expect what ended up happening from this, which was to raise up children to her name and to her, his firstborn son's name. The children come in verses 27 through 30. She has twins. She was giving birth, and one put out a hand. The midwife tied a scarlet thread, saying this one came out first. And then he takes his hand back in, and the other brother is born instead. And so she names him Perez. What a breach you have made for yourself. And the other one is named Zerah, Dawning, or Brightness. I said earlier that God was primarily concerned about the purity of his people and them following after him and not being led astray to idols rather than racial purity. How do we know this? Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 starts out in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, so on and so forth. At the very end of that passage, it says, verse 16, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This daughter, this son, rather, of a Canaanite woman, and a Jewish man born out of this tragedy and this sinful event from a human perspective and according to how the law would cause us to interpret it ends up being one of the ancestors of Christ the Messiah I highlight that fact for you not to say that what they did was fine clearly it was sinful I highlight that fact that fact for you to say God accomplished his purpose despite sin, through sin, and overcoming sin in order to, in the person of Christ, deal with all of our sin. I'll tie that theme further together after we look at chapter 39. Chapter 39, I'm going to skim over a little bit just for sake of time because I think you're familiar with the story. But here's the structure of the passage. God blesses Joseph in Potiphar's house. There's the confrontation with Potiphar's wife. 
God blesses Joseph in the prison. So blessing kind of brackets or, or sets the boundaries for this story. And in the middle, we have this confrontation with Potiphar's wife. And that's the part that I want us to focus on. Keeping in mind, Joseph's been a slave. His brothers have sold him into slavery. The slave traders sell him off to Potiphar. But God is with him. God prospers him. God blesses him. And so he might have an expectation to think, I'm in a position of power and authority. I can have whatever I want. But notice the verses that we looked at. <coughs> Excuse me. Notice the verses that we looked at. Potiphar didn't worry about anything except when the food was set before him, he ate it. Joseph took care of everything else in his house. Joseph was handsome. His master's wife looked with desire to him and said, lie with me. This is the exact same thing that was shown in the earlier chapter. The exact same thing that Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, did. The difference being, instead of it being a transaction of money, or rather the promise of a young goat from the flock, it was the implied promise of power, authority, some sort of privilege that maybe he didn't yet have in the household. Jo Joseph refuses. And this is where the contrast brings up between Judah and Joseph. Joseph refuses. Judah did what was wrong. Notice the reasons that Joseph refuses. My master has put all that he owns into my charge. There's a measure of trust and responsibility that has been given to him. Verse 8. Verse 9. You're the only thing in this household that's off limits, and I am going to honor that. And the end of verse 9. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? Joseph recognized, even in the midst of a pagan culture, where he might have thought, I've got to look out for myself because no one else cares about me. He recognized God's hand in blessing him, even as Potiphar had seen it. He acknowledges that despite his position in the household, he was still a servant to his master, and his wife was not part of the things that he could oversee, and he had no right and claim to her. And most importantly, to sin in that way would be to sin against God. This was not a one-time event. She spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her or lie beside her or be with her. He was very careful to make it very clear that he was not in any way giving in to her temptation, her offer to sin with him. And then the familiar account, she approaches him one day, and it turns out that none of the other servants, none of the men of the household were there. She seizes him by his, his outer garment, his, his coat, and, and she says again, she urges him, lie with me, sin with me, commit adultery with me. And he, he pulls himself out of her hand, leaving his coat behind, and runs outside. Then she calls the other servants in, and she lies about him. And she says she screamed. And then she says he left his coat behind and he ran outside. So now she's got evidence. And she lies to Potiphar. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to make sport of me. Notice the parallel between her words and Eve's words, or rather Adam's words. When excusing his sin. The wife that you gave to me, God... There's a complete 
lack of responsibility for her own actions and her part in this circumstance. And uh, just uh, painting the picture of, I was innocent, and he tried to take advantage of me. Verse 19, when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. He takes him, puts him in the jail where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. And then, as we know, God blesses him even in the jail. And the same kind of language that we see in the beginning of the chapter. Why did Joseph succeed where Judah failed? And the short answer would be that the text doesn't say, but it perhaps gives us hints. Judah's perspective from the text appears to have been, I've lost my wife. I deserve some kind of comfort. Here's an easy way to achieve my goal. Joseph's attitude is, I have trust and responsibility. There are certain things in this household that are off limits to me, and I'm not going to sin against God even when the exact same sort of opportunity is presented to me. Judah and Joseph didn't know about each other's respective temptations. They were far away. One's down in Egypt, and one is still in the land of Canaan. Judah probably thinks Joseph is dead by now. And yet these two stories are set side by side to highlight for us the contrast between the kind of righteousness that God expects and the kind of action that we often give into with regard to temptation. The title that I gave to the sermon is to not owe anything except love. The reason that I put that is because in Romans chapter 13, turn over there with me if you would, Paul begins talking about the idea of government and what is owed to government. But then he makes a broader application in Romans 13 verses 8 through 14 that I think has very clear parallels to these two passages in the Old Testament. He says, Romans 13, verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He says something somewhat similar in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read that for you as well. He says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you, 
And then in the very next verse, now as to love of the brethren, and he goes back to this idea of love. What is the connection between Genesis 38 and 39, Romans 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, and the experience of the Israelites? Think about the ways that they often sinned in connection with um, the peoples around them. Often it involved the same sorts of things that we see Judah doing in chapter 38. And God, I think, wanted the Israelites to see, even though obviously they didn't have Romans 13 and 1 Thessalonians 4 to explain it more clearly. God wanted the Israelites to see that I have required you not to live this way, not only because it displeases me, but also because you show that you don't love those around you when you sin in these ways with your body that God gave you to be used for good purposes, and you have chosen to use to serve your own purposes and to violate God's law and to harm those around you. The Israelites commit immorality, and 1 Corinthians warns us about this, right? These things were written as our examples so that we would not behave the same way that they did. That comes later in the book of Numbers. And so for the Israelites, presumably standing after the events of Numbers and after the events of Deuteronomy, receiving the entirety of the, of the Pentateuch, look back at Judah's actions and should not have looked at Judah and been like, I can't believe he did that, which is what we often do with the Israelites, right? They should have said, he acts like we have acted so many times in this brief period of time after God delivered us with mighty miracles from the land of Egypt and God has shown us his favor and God has said what we ought to do and God wants us to have this, this uncorrupted relationship with him that's not led astray into idolatry and there's a lot of parallels between idolatry and adultery in the Old Testament, right? God wants us to be his own people, not let us pray into sin. And one of the ways that we show that we're his own people is because we don't commit adultery and other sins of that nature because they're closely associated with being led into idolatry, which is the greatest unfaithfulness of all, which is unfaithfulness toward God. So what about for us? We might look at the negative example of um, Judah. In fact, what we often do is we skip over that one. How many of you heard the story of Joseph in Sunday school, but not the story of Judah? Probably all of us. Because it's a difficult passage, and we don't know what to make of it. But when we set these two things beside each other, we see a bad example and a good example, one pointing toward our common human response and the other pointing to the response that's only possible in connection with the relationship with God. One that shows a complete disregard for the core of the law with regard to others, which is love your neighbor as yourself, and the other showing example of love your neighbor as yourself even toward a pagan. From one perspective, Joseph didn't owe anything to Potiphar. Potiphar is his master. He doesn't love him. He doesn't care about him. He puts him in a position of authority, but largely because he sees God is blessing Joseph, so it'll help me out if I put him in a position because then I'll get blessed. Which ironically has a lot to do with the promise that God made Abraham, right? God blessed pagan peoples around Abraham's family even though they didn't deserve it. But I digress. The main thing that we ought to see 
is here's a bad example and a good example. And instead of saying the point of it is simply run away from sin, which is a point to be made, right? We ought to run away from sin. We ought to run away from sin. But more importantly, we ought to run away from sin because we love our neighbor as ourselves. Why should you not commit adultery? Why should you not commit some other kind of immorality? Why should I not do it? Why should any Christian not live that way? Because from the very beginning, God has wanted us to love him with all of who we are. Wanted us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we can't do that, right? We can't do that because we are sinners. Maybe we haven't sinned in the ways we see in these chapters. But we sin. And we think that we can fix that sin on our own. And we fail, and we fail, and we fail. And we don't come to Jesus simply to fix our sin. But coming to Jesus is the only way that it's made possible for us to do so, right? And so when Paul says something like, salvation is near to us, live in a particular way, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we can follow the good example of Joseph and avoid the bad example of Judah, recognizing the only way it's possible for us to do that is that we've begun to follow Christ through the gospel and we continue to put on Christ through sanctification and by God's grace, we say no to these sorts of temptations. Why do we say yes to these kinds of temptations? And when I say, why do we say yes to these kinds of temptations? Generally, these are things that happen in the context of our own hearts and minds, right? To my knowledge, none of us have done the things that are described in this chapter. But there's a great likelihood in the world that we live in that we've been tempted to think this way or to want these things. And part of the safeguard against it is, first of all, you have to follow and know Jesus because otherwise you have no defense against these temptations. But having begun to follow Jesus, look at what Judah thought, potentially. Again, I'm making some assumptions, but I think they're clearly implied in the text. Look at the circumstances, at the very least, which are very clear in the text. His wife had died. He was going up to a place to spend time with his friend. He had potentially created a circumstance in which it was easy for him to say yes to the temptation. But it's not just don't go to bad places and you won't be tempted, right? Joseph had no choice about where he was. Joseph had no choice about how his master's wife approached him. And so the goal in terms of sanctification is that by God's grace, we get to a point where it doesn't matter what place we're in or who's around us. We still say to God, I will obey you by your help. Despite the fact that I'm in a really difficult circumstance. So sometimes we come to this point and we say, 
well, if I just don't go to bad places, put an internet filter on my computer, um, don't watch certain movies, don't read certain books, I will not sin. We ought to aim higher than that. By God's grace, we ought to get to a point where we can say no to sin, even when circumstances outside of our control have conspired to put us in a place of great temptation like Joseph faced, we still have a right response. So going back to the beginning. We ought to reject sin because it displeases and offends God. We also ought to reject sin out of love for one another. That's the point of 1 Thessalonians 4, right? Romans 13 is, you have salvation, the day draws near, keep putting on Christ. Sin displeases God, so put it off. 1 Thessalonians 4 is, this is God's will. But also, if you sin in these ways, you are stealing from your brother. You are not showing love to your brother. You are harming your brother, your sister in Christ. Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when it comes to the specific sins that we see in Genesis 38 and 39, assorted kinds of immorality and sordid kinds of immorality, we ought to see those things as sin. We ought to say, I will not do those things. We ought to see ourselves in Judah's experience and say, sometimes I've put myself in those kinds of circumstances and set myself up to sin in a particular way, and so I shouldn't do that. And I shouldn't make excuses for my sin. I should call sin what it is, whatever sin it is, but particularly this one from this passage. But I also ought to look at the example of Joseph and say, by God's grace... I can say no to temptation, to immorality, to adultery, to all of those sorts of things when it seems like the only, when it seems like I will only get good out of giving in to the temptation. It's one more step in progress. It's one more thing added to all of the things that I already have, so it's worth it. But to take that attitude fails to recognize why Joseph was in the spot that he was in. He was a slave because God sent him down to Egypt. He was a slave as the steward over Potiphar's household because God had blessed him. So when we have an accurate perspective on who we are and who God is, what God requires of us both with regard to him and with regard to other people and we take all of these things together in connection with the gospel and ask God for his help to reject temptation and see the work of his spirit in helping us to put off sinful habits and put on new ones. God accomplishes the goal that he set out to accomplish in the very beginning, which is simple faith and obedience. We are not under the law with regard to the Ten Commandments and all the associated 600 and some commands that were given to the Israelites. But that doesn't mean that God just forgot about the law and said, oh, it's over here, doesn't matter anymore. 
Paul talks about the law of Christ, the law of liberty. James talks about it as well. And at its core, what God wants of us as his people is the same thing that he wanted of Adam and Eve, of the people of Israel, of Jacob's family. Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbors yourself. And so specifically from these passages, don't do immorality because it violates both things. Because it's associated with idolatry that rejects God. And because it's associated with harm to a brother or a sister that rejects this idea of loving your neighbors yourself. And so if you face the sorts of temptations that Judah faced and gave into, or the sorts of temptations that Joseph faced and had victory over, there is hope from this passage that by God's grace, we can put off sin and put on righteousness. There is the encouragement that even though things looked bad for Joseph after he did what was right, and that's our fear, right? If I do what's right, it will at the very least inconvenience me. At the very worst, I'll miss out on something that I really want or I'll lose out. Joseph lost out. Position of authority, thrown into jail again. No power as a slave, power as a slave, jail. We get to see the next thing that happens in Joseph's life, right? So it's easy for us to say, well, it all worked out for him. Joseph didn't know it was going to all work out. And that's the struggle. Are we going to choose between what seems like is a good thing in the moment and forget about how God's worked in our lives up to that point? Or are we going to say, even if God never restores me to the thing that I think that I ought to have, like even if Joseph had remained a slave for the rest of his life and died a slave and God hadn't done all the other things, that he did in his life, would it still have been worth it for Joseph to do what he did? To say no to the temptation. If we really love and honor God, we'd have to say yes. Are you willing to make that choice? Like it says in Hebrews about Moses, right? He gave up the pleasures of e Egypt to dwell with the people of God. Not perfectly. He had his own share of sin as well. But are we willing to give up what this world offers because Jesus is better because in it will fulfill God's law. And we see these examples from the Old Testament. We see the outcome of them in God's purpose and plan. We see in the New Testament further instruction on these things and some more explaining of the reasons for them. And we say, if I love God and I love the people around me, I can't sin these ways. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit immorality. Because God hates it, and because if you do it, you hate the people around you. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty topics, difficult topics, things that we don't often want to discuss. There is beauty in the marriage relationship that you designed, and we can be embarrassed about it or uh, hesitant to hold it up as a good thing just because of all of the foolishness that goes on in the world around us. But when we set the example of what you designed marriage to be in contrast to all of the corruptions of it, we see a, the picture of the holiness of Christ toward his church in Ephesians 5 contrasted with the selfishness 
that we would demonstrate if we disobey what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4. Lord, we've seen how these things have unfolded in the lives of Jacob's family in this book. Help us not to pretend like this has no connection to our lives today. Help us to be honest that these sorts of temptations are around us in our world today. Help us to purpose in our hearts to follow you even though it will cost us. Help us to see that we triumph only through the work of your spirit in our lives according to the work that you have planned to do in us on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished for us. We pray that you would give us the strength to follow in Joseph's footsteps this week and not in Judah's, that we would honor you, love our wives, train our children about these things, and by your grace not give the world around us a reason to mock your name and reject your truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.